Thank you, Tim, and thank you all for having me here. I would love to meet you if you haven't met you yet, so come over after Sunday school or after service and say hi. As, uh, as hopefully you got an outline, your outline says we're covering biblical canon this morning. And the question we're really trying to answer is why do we have the books of the Bible that we have? Um, who chose that, if anyone? And is there any historical evidence for how this happened? Um, how we're going to do this is we're going to cover three myths. Uh, we're going to watch videos of claims that people have made about the canon, and then we're going to debunk those myths, and then I'm going to give some corrections, some, some, uh, some right ways to think about this. But before we get into that, let me give a brief uh, overview of why this is an important question. Of course, we're talking about scripture, and we all know scripture is important. Um, but scripture really is the only way that we could know about God. If we didn't have scripture, we couldn't know anything about an infinite God who is greater than anything we could think of. And even we couldn't know, even if he wasn't infinite, we couldn't know anything about him if he didn't reveal himself to us. I kind of think of it like in a marriage. I'm sure those of us who are married here can attest to this. We could not know what our spouse is thinking unless they told us, even if sometimes we think otherwise. Um, and it's the same with God. We couldn't know God's mind if he didn't reveal it to us, if he didn't speak to us. And so that's what we have in the Bible. God reveals himself to us in general revelation in nature, but more specifically in scripture. And so the Bible is God's self-revelation. It's his word to us, revealing to us what he's doing in the world, what he's like, um, describing to us himself and his purpose in the world. But it isn't just one book. That's kind of a shock for some people to hear who aren't super familiar with scripture. It's, it's actually a collection of 66 books. I'm sure all of us here know that. But why are there 66? That's our question today. Why aren't there 67 or 65? Um, some, some denominations of Christianity have more books. Um, some throughout the history of the church have had less. Some have denied the uh, canonicity of the Old Testament. Um, so the Roman and Eastern Orthodox churches accept what we call the apocryphal books as canon. These are books like Maccabees, um, the Wisdom of Solomon. These are books that were written in between the Old Testament time and the New Testament. And Roman and Eastern Orthodox Church recognize these as scripture, but we do not. Um, there are other books called the Pseudepigrapha, which were written... Uh, also in the same time period, but they're claiming to be ancient figures writing these books, but they're not ancient figures actually. They're just um, written by modern people. Uh, so like the books like the first, second, Enoch, that kind of stuff. Um, and most churches do not accept these as scripture. That's not really a question for any church today. Uh, and then there are other writings that were contemporary with the New Testament that some claim could have been scripture, but aren't, and no churches accept these. These are writings like the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Mary Magdalene. Um, so these are the kind of questions that we're dealing with. Why aren't those books in our canon, in our Bibles, and who made this decision? So let's look at this first myth, this first wrong answer to the question um, in this video on TikTok. Bits of church history that made me start to question my faith. Number one, the Council of Nicaea. If you're unfamiliar with it, Go look it up. 
it doesn't make a whole heck of a lot of sense. Basically, a bunch of dudes got together, took all the Christian writings that had previously been considered canon, and decided some of these are canon, some of them are not. Who said those dudes got to do this? Who said those dudes had any right? Those dudes. They said it. Interestingly, this all happened way after Jesus died, and not one of those dudes had ever met the man. So I hope you can get the idea of the myth from that video. The idea is that the Council of Nicaea chose which books would be in the Bible. Um, and some people say, they, they put it this way, they say like a bunch of old white men picked the books of the Bible, and so we can't trust it because it wasn't, you know, it wasn't people of color, whatever the issue is. Um, this is actually a really serious myth. It's really popular. Um, it obviously caused this woman to question her faith, and it's caused many people to do the same. I remember when my wife was in college, she went to a Christian school, but a lot of her classmates would put out this myth, and they would say, you know, the Bible can't be trusted because the books were just arbitrarily chosen at the Council of Nicaea. So let's consider how this myth came about. I, I was really fascinated when I did this research because it's not actually that modern of a myth, even though it's very popular today. Um, so if you, if you aren't familiar, the Council of Nicaea met in 325 AD. It was a gathering of a bunch of church leaders to discuss issues of Christology, the nature and the work of Christ. And it wasn't actually gathered to discuss questions about canon. Um, all of the records that we have don't say anything about their discussing canon. But in the ninth century, there was a book called, in Latin, Synodicon Vitus, which I'm pretty sure means ancient councils. And it says that the Council of Nicaea decided between the canonical books and the false books by putting them on an altar in the house of God, all the books that they were trying to choose between. And then they, they asked the Lord in prayer that the inspired works would be found on top of the stack and the spurious books on the bottom. And this is how it happened, apparently. <laughs> and this, this writing is a pretty old writing, you know, 800s AD, but that's still uh, 500 years after the Council of Nicaea, roughly. So it's, a, it's an old myth, but it's not reliable whatsoever. Of course, it sounds silly. It's kind of a miraculous uh, myth. Um, and so it's not, obviously, it's not a true uh, retelling of what happened at the Council of Nicaea. But it gained popularity. Um, the French philosopher Voltaire in the 18th century repopularized this in his day. He wrote, um, he wrote, he, he retold this myth from, from this old 9th century writing. And then, of course, in our day, Dan Brown popularized this in The Da Vinci Code, uh, that work of fiction that some people didn't realize was fiction. So let's respond to this this really interesting myth. Uh, first, anybody who says that it was a bunch of old white men don't know their history. It was held in modern-day Turkey. That's where Nicaea is. That's not Europe. <clears throat> and many, many important bishops came from Africa. Uh, the, the, the church in Alexandria was a really important church in this council. So, of course, that, that claim is not true. But also the claim that they touched on canon, like I said, is just not accurate. Um, if you've read the Nicene Creed or if you've, you've confessed it before, you know that the Nicene Creed is suspiciously lacking anything about canon. It's a creed about Christology, it's about the Trinity, what we are to believe and what we are not to believe about Christ and his nature. Um, 
And if you, you can actually read records of what the council did. They're called the 20 Canons of Nicaea. It's kind of confusing. It's not the canon of the Bible, but it's these, these rules that the, that the Council of Nicaea put out. There's 20 of them, and they're usually, they're just discussing church matters. Who can be a, a priest, who can be a pastor, um, who can be a deacon, when you should worship uh, on Easter, what day Easter is. Those were the kinds of things that the Council of Nicaea was concerned with besides Christology. It was not canon. So this myth is actually, it's, you can trace the development of this myth, which is really fascinating. You can see when, um, when an early writing first put it out. It has no historical support besides this, this ninth century writing. And even worse, it assumes that the Bible, the books of the Bible, were chosen arbitrarily rather than sovereignly determined by God. So that's why this myth is a no-go for the answer of who chose the books of the Bible and why we have 66 of them. So let's go to the next myth. And I had a video for this, but uh, maybe miraculously, the audio for it is not working. And I think that's for the best because it's Bart Ehrman who's speaking. And Sometimes it's better if he just is muted. Um, but the myth is that the books that did not end up in the Bible actually had the same amount of authority and weight and influence in the early church as the books that did end up in the Bible. So Bart Ehrman, uh, he is following a, a theologian and writer named Walter Bauer who worked in the 19th and 20th centuries. And Bauer came up with this thesis that there was no such thing as orthodoxy in the early church. There was no form of like right Christianity. It, instead, it was just a free-for-all. There were a lot of different kinds of Christianities. And the one that won the day, it, you know, it's kind of the idea that the victors write history. So he was saying, you know, the orthodox just decided that they were orthodox and the others weren't. And it was kind of arbitrary, it was politically motivated, was his claim. You know, when, when Constantine uh, made Christianity the, the uh, imperial religion, supposedly, Constantine didn't actually do that, but supposedly, when that happened, then the Orthodox Christians, so-called, won the day, and the others did not. So that's the claim. There, there was not a true Christianity. Instead, these other, these other writings, which we would call heretical, were actually just as important in the early church, just as uh, influential. Um, and this is a more modern myth. Uh, in the, over the last two to 300 years, there have been many discoveries of these writings that we would call heretical. Um, the writings like the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, uh, various epistles, uh, and very, various other writings that we would usually call Gnostic. Gnostic was an early Christian myth um, which, which had to do with secret knowledge. Gnosis means knowledge, Gnostic. Uh, and so they would, they would, you know, pretend that they had some secret knowledge that would bring you eternal life if you knew that secret knowledge and they would hide it pretty closely. And if you could understand it, then you were, you were, you were kind of this higher level of Christian or this higher level of, of human. And they had various, uh, various reasons why their, their secret knowledge was heretical. They usually taught that the Old Testament God was you know, not actually God. He was some kind of evil being. And the New Testament God was the good God. A lot of things wrong with, with Gnosticism. But that's what these writings are. That's the point that I'm trying to make. Bart Ehrman's talking about these Gnostic writings. And he's saying that they had just as much weight in the early church as our biblical writings did. 
And so let's respond to this briefly. There's, a, there's of course, a lot that we could say about this. But first, what we can say is uh, Bart Ehrman is talking about these New Testament writings. Like I've been talking about, Gnosticism was a, a, a post-apostolic heresy. It, was, it came about probably in the two to 300s AD. Um, and so it was you know, roughly, you could say, contemporary with New Testament writings as New Testament writings were being put out. And, and so what we can say is that there has never been disagreement between Protestants, Roman Catholics, and Eastern Orthodox on the New Testament canon. I said earlier that there is some disagreement about the Old Testament canon. Uh, Roman, Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox, uh, they have the, the Book of Maccabees, you know, these other apocryphal books in their Old Testaments, but their New Testaments are for the most part exactly the same as ours in terms of what books are in the New Testament. Uh, so these books that Bart Ehrman is talking about have never been considered scripture by Christians. Uh, another thing we can say is that even though a lot of these heretical books were recently discovered, uh, in, in the video, uh, Ehrman talks about Nag Hammadi, which was a really important discovery of writings in 1945. Um, it's a, it, Nag Hammadi is, a, is a, a city, essentially, in Egypt. And they found it, it was basically a, a garbage a heap where all of these writings were. And I think that's, you can kind of tell why they were there. Um, but all of these Gnostic writings were in this heap of, of stuff that they found at Nag Hammadi. And so it's a recent discovery, 1945, these writings were discovered, the Gospel of Thomas, etc. But that doesn't mean we didn't know about them before 1945. What's really interesting is you can read, I read um, Cyril of Jerusalem, he's, I think, fourth century uh, church father, and he talks about the Gospel of Thomas, and he says, this is heresy, don't read this book. Uh, he, he attributes it to, to the Gnostics, and he says it's not scripture in the fourth century. Uh, and of course, Bart Ehrman would say that there was no such thing as heresy in the fourth century, but I think it says something that one of the early church fathers had identified this book as heresy, and he knew about it before 1945. Um, and of course, uh, as I hinted at before, the Gnostic uh, doctrine is, there's a lot that's wrong with it. And so the secret knowledge that they have in these writings are sometimes just kind of ludicrous. Uh, you know, obviously they're heretical, but sometimes they're just absurd. So I'll give you an example. I will read to you the last sentence of the Gospel of Thomas, and it, it, it makes me laugh. So this is the last sentence of the Gospel of Thomas that Bart Ehrman talks about in the video, and he says, you know, this was scripture to some people in the early church, and it, you know, has just as much weight as the New Testament. Apparently, Jesus says, according to the Gospel of Thomas, that every woman who will make herself male will enter the kingdom of heaven. He said in the Gospel of Thomas that no woman can enter the kingdom of heaven unless she becomes male. So you can see, like, just, just the character of the book is just kind of absurd. It's not, it's not what we have in Scripture. Scripture is very uh, reverent. It's very, you can, you can tell how weighty the words that it's saying are, but in these writings, it's a lot like that. That's kind of a, a sample of the absurdity that's in these writings. Um, these writings also are not claiming to present history. They make no historical claims. They're just, they usually follow the same formula. Jesus takes Jesus takes an obscure disciple aside, like Thomas Didymus. He's not really an important disciple in the early church. He didn't have any other writings, so it's kind of a, you know, it's a pretty easy target. Nobody knew too much about him, so let's take him aside. Jesus takes him aside and says, here's 
a secret. I told nobody else this. It's just for you. And then he, it's just all of these sayings. There's no historical claim, no events that are um, presented. Um, and that, that contradicts pretty starkly with Scripture. Scripture makes a lot of historical claims, especially in the Gospels. It's, it's uh, tracking Jesus' um, travels, his ministry. And you can, you know, if you look at the Gospel of John even, the historical claims that he makes just about archaeology, uh, not archaeology, architecture, are quite, quite amazing. Stuff that we're just discovering now about, you know, this, the area surrounding the temple in Jerusalem. Um, it's, it's historically verifiable stuff that are in the Gospels, and that's not the case with these other Gnostic Gospels. And of course, the underlying purpose of these books contradicts that of Scripture. Scripture is all about revealing God's mystery of salvation to all people who will believe in Christ, and these Gnostic Gospels are all about keeping things hidden, secret, hard to understand, um, and they say that you can only be saved if you understand these secret things. So that's why this myth is a no-go, this answer to our question. Let's look at the third one, and I think we have a video for this. This is about the Roman Catholic Church. Many people quote the Bible at Catholics, but very few, not even Protestant pastors most times, know that there was a Catholic Church that made the Bible. Catholic Church that canonized and chose the books that would make up the Bible. And there was over 80 Gospels and hundreds of epistles, but it was the Catholic Church who went through all of them, collected them from all around the world, and said, these are the ones that are inspired by the Holy Spirit. These are the ones that are Scripture, and the other ones, no matter how good they are, are not Scripture. And so it was the Catholic Church at the Council of Rome in 382, the Council of Carthage in 397, and ratified by the Pope in 401, the official list of books that would go in the Bible. This is awesome. I mean, this is amazing. If the Catholic Church, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and by the authority of Christ had the authority to make the canon of Scripture, then the Catholic Church also has the authority, and only the Catholic Church has the authority, to interpret Scripture, because no one else was given that authority by Christ, and no other church was started by Christ. Many Myth. <clears throat> Obviously, there's a lot we could say about it, a lot of claims that he's making, but we're going to zero in on the idea that the Roman Catholic Church made the Bible. You could even just take out the Roman Catholic if you want. You could just say the church made the Bible, but we're going to focus on this claim that the Roman Catholic Church made the Bible. Um, and you can see this is kind of a mix of the other two myths as well. He, he talked about, you know, there were hundreds of other writings that the Roman Catholic Church chose from. That's kind of like the second myth, right? That there were a lot of other writings that could have been in the Bible, but just weren't, and it's kind of arbitrary. Um, and, and it's kind of a mix of the first myth as well. The first myth talked about the Council of Nicaea, but he's talking about other councils as well, and he's saying these councils made the decision. They chose the books of the Bible. So, so let's look at these historical claims that he made. He talked about three things, the Council of Rome, the Council of Carthage, and then a pope in 401. So let's look at those one by one and, and just see if that's actually true, what, what he's talking about is actually true, whether the decision was made at these councils so, like the Council of Nicaea, we can only know what these councils did by looking at what they wrote. We can't, you know, there's no really oral tradition that we can follow that, you know, we can, we can figure out. There's no other way to know what they did except for their writings. And unlike the Council of Nicaea, the Council of Rome in 382 does not have a good record of what they did. 
uh, there's one writing, the closest thing that we have is called the Decree of Galatius, and Galatius was a, a, a bishop of Rome, a pope, uh, in the, the late fifth century. And so he lived about 100 years after this council in 382. So even that is a little bit suspicious. This writing that's the closest thing that we have to a record of what the council did was written about 100 years after the council. Uh, it's true that this, this document, the Decree of Galatius, has a list of Old Testament and New Testament books, and it has a list of rejected books. And I, I'm more interested by the rejected books because you can actually see you know, the Gospel of Thomas, some of these writings that are claimed to be, uh, you know, on par with scripture, which were recently discovered, but this, this person who wrote this actually knew about them. Uh, but this document can't be conclusively tied to the Council of Rome in 382. In fact, the scholars that I read, um, which, were, which were pretty, they were reputable scholars, they suggested that, or I don't think they suggested, they said that this, this writing was more likely from the sixth century, which would be uh, you know, 200 years afterward, and written by an individual, not, not a council, not, not, a, not a bishop. It wasn't even probably written in Italy. So there's a lot of question marks around this writing. So the most we can say, or, or the least we could say, I guess, is we don't know what happened to the Council of Rome. The most we could say is that, you know, this writing that they claim is from the Council of Rome is actually an individual. It wasn't a council making this decision. Um, and it was written much later. Uh, the... the the reason that, that Roman Catholics probably point to this council is that this document, which claims to be from this council, uh, actually has the same list of biblical books that the Council of Trent had. And the Council of Trent was essentially the, the response to the Protestant Reformation and it, after the Reformation. Uh, and they were kind of trying to squash Protestantism. And so they, you know, they said, these are the books of the Bible. Anybody who says otherwise is a heretic. And of course, we say otherwise. And so they point to this council and as proof that, you know, we're, we're the right ones, we have this proof. But uh, of course, the, the, the document that they point to is questionable, to say the least. And so the next one, the Council of Carthage in 397. So this one does have a pretty good record. Um, I, I forget, I think the records are called something about the, the records of the councils in Africa. Carthage is in Africa, Northern Africa. You can actually read these, these documents um, from this council. And it does include a list of Old Testament and New Testament books uh, received as canon. But we cannot agree with the man in the video that at this, uh, at this council they made canon. Um, so even though, you know, I made a big point about the Council of Nicaea not talking about the Bible whatsoever because that's just historically true, but that doesn't mean that we can't say that councils never talked about the books of the Bible. That's not a big deal. We can say, you know, councils would, they would occasionally talk about the books of the Bible, and Council of Carthage seems to be an example of that. But what, what we can't say is that they were making the canon of the Bible in the councils. And you can see this, I mean, this isn't just me disagreeing with Roman Catholics, you can see this in the writings from this Council of Carthage. After giving the list of biblical books, they said, these are the things which we have received from our fathers to be read in church. They did not say, we looked at all the books, we gathered them from all around the world, and we decided these are the ones. They said, this is, this is what we received. 
We received it from those who came before us. We did not make the decision. And that would have been, of course, really uh, radical if they did say, we decided between these books and this is what we came up with. That would have been a big deal um, because the church has always been about doing what the church has always done, doing what the early church has always done. Um, it's always been about looking back to the scriptures and to the early church. And so trying to do something new would have been pretty radical. Um, and of course, you know, in the video, he says that the, the Council of Carthage was kind of ratifying what the Council of Rome did. And if the Council of Rome, like I, like I said, didn't actually do what he said it did in the video, then the Council of Carthage wasn't. When, when they said, this is what we received from our fathers, it, they couldn't be talking about the Council of Rome because we don't know that the Council of Rome actually did uh, what the video said that they did. So the Council of Carthage is actually denying his claim He's claiming that they made the canon, but they're saying we received it from those who came before us. And just, this is kind of a pedantic point, but Carthage is in Africa, like I said. That's not in Rome. So you can't say the Roman Catholic Church made the Bible. It was in Africa, and a pope was not there at this council, so you can't say it was the pope overseeing the council in Carthage. Um, it's just a pedantic point, but it's kind of important to this guy's claim that it was the Roman Catholic Church. And to that, he claims that a a pope ratified the canon in 401. And I could not find, uh, I could not find what he's talking about. He doesn't say which pope, which kind of made it hard. He gives a year, and that's all I could go off of. So the pope that was pope in 401 is named Anastasius I, and he did not write anything on canon I, that I could find. He died in 401. <clears throat> um, the pope who came after him might have actually been his son, which is fascinating. <laughs> His name was Innocent the First, which, uh, if you know anything about popes, any pope named Innocent is not going to be innocent. Uh, but he did. Innocent the First actually wrote a letter in 405, containing a list of Old Testament, and New Testament books. But it's it's kind of like a private letter between him and a bishop, as far as I could tell. Um, he wasn't making. He wasn't saying I ratify this canon. He was just giving another bishop some advice on which books were to be rejected. Um, and it wasn't in 401, so I, I, I think that's the best that I could come up with to respond to that, um, to that claim. And of course, what, what's fascinating to me is that there was a bishop of Alexandria in 396, I believe, named Athanasius, really, really important bishop, uh, who defended, he defended uh, Orthodox Trinitarianism against, against really, really popular heresy. Um, he basically defended the faith in a time where it was, it was really questionable whether it would be, whether it would survive. <clears throat> and Athanasius, in 396, which is, you know, uh, if 405 was, was when this pope wrote, so that's quite a bit before, uh, <clears throat> or rather, I think it's 367, but whatever it is, it's before this pope. <laughs> he wrote a list that differed from the Pope in 405. Um, he wrote a list that was the same as our Protestant Bible, but the Pope in 405 wrote a list that's the same as the Roman Catholic Bible, including the, the Apocrypha books. Um, and so that's interesting to me, just because, you know, it's a bishop in Alexandria and a bishop in Rome, and their lists are different. Uh, and one of them is actually earlier, so which one do we take as authoritative? Of course, the Roman Catholics would take the one in Rome to be authoritative, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't be so quick to do that. 
So, so let's respond to this claim as a whole, the claim that the Roman Catholic Church made the Bible. This claim assumes that the church is infallible, that it cannot make a mistake. Um, because of course, if it could make a mistake, then we could say that the church made a mistake when it made the canon. It also assumes that the church has authority over the Bible, and that's a really important thing to realize. Because the exact opposite is true. The church does not have authority over the Bible. The Bible gives the church its authority. The Bible has, a, the Bible has authority over the church. It tells us what to do. Um, and in fact, the church is not infallible. That's why we have the Bible, the infallible Bible. We have it as our, as our rule, as our standard, because we are fallible. We make mistakes. And you know, if you've been in the church for long enough, you know that to be true. If you've looked at, you know, videos like this, you know that to be true. Church makes mistakes. Um, and to say that the, the Bible, or, or, or that the church made the Bible is exactly the opposite of the truth. The Bible made the church. There would be no church, there would be no Christianity if we didn't have scripture. It's the only source for, like I, like I started the lesson with, it's our only source for knowing about God. It's our only source for knowing about Jesus. There would be no such thing as followers of Christ if we didn't have his word in the Bible. And so we can't say that followers of Christ existed before the word. Of course, the disciples existed before the New Testament, but they had the Old Testament. So the Bible makes the church. The Bible has authority over the church because the Bible is God's word. It's not the church's word. Uh, the Roman Catholic apologist in this video seems like if you follow his reasoning, I'm sure he wouldn't say this at all, but if you follow his reasoning, it becomes the church's word, not God's word. And so just as to conclude this myth, it's true that some council did address canon. They did give lists of Old Testament, New Testament books, but we can't say that these councils made canon. And for good reason, these councils didn't claim to make canon. Um, they, they claimed to be receiving what they had from their predecessors, from their fathers. And so now that we've looked at these three myths, let's, let's correct them. Let's have some, some positive statements about canon. What can we say about the process of, of the books of the Bible becoming God's word, becoming the books of the Bible? First thing we can say is, what I've already said is that the church received these books. They received and recognized the books of the Bible as canonical and authoritative. They did not, <clears throat> they did not make it so. They didn't make them canon. Uh, the books of the Bible are not canonical because they were received by the church. It's exactly the opposite. They were received by the church because they are canonical. The church, uh, this is maybe a helpful illustration, the church is more like a thermometer than a thermostat. It, it takes the temperature in terms of canon of scripture. It doesn't set the temperature. So in, in contrast to these myths that we've looked at, the church did not decide which books would be in, which books would be out. Instead, they received the books they had been given from God. And because there were a lot of different books to choose from, it's true, there were a lot of different books um, at the same time that were mixed, you know, some, some factions of Christianity were claiming to have different books. It was necessary to receive the books and recognize them 
as scripture, but that didn't mean that they made it scripture. Um, they didn't decide between these books. Instead, they said, these books are clearly heresy, and these books are the ones that we have received as authoritative. <clears throat> because the, count, the, the, the canon that they received was already determined. They didn't determine it. It was already determined before they received it. The second thing we can say is that this process of recognizing canon was organic. It was not political or mechanical. These myths, there's a common thread that, that the process of canonization was a mechanical thing. Somebody, you know, showed up and said, this is the list, and all the other books are wrong. It's a very mechanical process. Um, it, you can also see how it's very political, you know, the Emperor Constantine at the Council of Nicaea came along and said, these are the books of the Bible because I won the war and all the losers, well, too bad. And that, but that's not the case. These, these myths have this common, three, this common thread, but that's not what actually happened. Uh, we can see that in the, the, the Old Testament books, the 39 books that we have in the Old Testament, were pretty much settled in Jesus' time, which is you know, far before these claims that were made in the videos far before the councils and the popes that were talked about. Uh, there, were, there were three parts, there are three parts in the Jewish canon, the, just the way that they gather the books of the Bible together, the way they organize them. It's called the Law, which is the books of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, the writings, which would include the Psalms, uh, the, the wisdom books, uh, as well as you know, Daniel, for some reason, he's not a prophet, he's a, he's a writing in the Jewish canon. And then the prophets, which would, of course, be the major prophets, Isaiah, um, Ezekiel, but it would also include what we would, what we would consider the historical books. Um, they, they consider those prophetical books, the books of Samuel, uh, Judges, uh, and Kings. So that's, that's the three groups, and that's what we have in our Bible. We have all of those writings in our Bible, our Old Testament. And that's the Jewish canon even today. We have the same Old Testament as the Jewish Old Testament, which is kind of significant because the Roman Catholics can't say that. They have extra books, books that the Jews do not consider scripture. These books, the apocryphal books that I've mentioned a few times, they were written after the Old Testament and before the New Testament, and they were not considered scripture by the people of that time. Jesus, I'm sure, knew about these books. We know that Jude knew about these books. Um, he quotes First Enoch in his letter, which is really fascinating. We don't have time to talk about that. But they knew about these books, and they did not consider them scripture. No, none of the books, actually, First Enoch is not in the Roman Catholic Old Testament, but none of the books that they do have that we don't have in the Roman Catholic Old Testament, uh, none of those books are actually quoted in the New Testament. But all of the books that we have are quoted in the New Testament except five. And two of those are, are, are debatable. So really three. Three books of the Old Testament, and they were much later, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. These books are not quoted in the New Testament. Those are the only three. Um, and none of the books that, that, are, that are, you know, what we call apocryphal are actually quoted in the New Testament. And you can, if you read the Gospels, you see Jesus talk about the law, the Psalms and the prophets. And these are the three divisions of the Old Testament. That's what I told you about. The law, the writings, the prophets. Psalms are the biggest book in the writings. And so that's just, that's just characterizes that section. 
So you can see Jesus has the same Old Testament that we do. He talks about the law, the, the writings, and the prophets. Um, and so that was settled by Jesus' time, maybe even before. The, the New Testament books, the 27 books of the New Testament, were settled and recognized as early as the second century AD, which is before these Gnostic writings were actually written. The Gospel of Thomas, I think, is about third century. It's before these councils that we were talking about. Um, it's much earlier than most people will claim, the second century. Um, and this, this process, like I, like I said, it was organic. The New Testament books were accepted as scripture as they were being written. It happened, it happened progressively. Uh, they, the last New Testament book was probably written in the 90s AD, Revelation, that's usually the accepted date. Um, and like I said, as they were written, they were accepted. So the later books that were written took a little bit longer to be accepted. They were questioned a little bit more because they were written later. It took longer for them to circulate around the churches, uh, but they were ultimately still accepted. And you can kind of get a peek into this process even in the New Testament, which is really fascinating to me. Peter, in 2 Peter three fifteen through 16, calls the letters of Paul scripture. He says, you know, just as Paul said in his letters, which certain men twist and pervert as they do the other scriptures. That's really fascinating. He puts it on par with the Old Testament. <clears throat> And Paul does the same thing with Luke's gospel. He, it's, I think it's debatable, but I, I find it pretty convincing. He uses the same exact Greek words as Luke does um, in 1 Timothy 5.18. He quotes as scripture. He says, as the scriptures say, he quotes the Old Testament, Deuteronomy, and then he quotes Jesus in the gospel of Luke. So you can see even in the New Testament time, they were considering New Testament books as scripture. They treated them, they talked about them as God's word. And you can also see uh, in the New Testament the circulation process. Uh, you know, Paul, it's really obvious, Paul wrote to certain cities. The book of Colossians was written to the church in Colossae. But it wasn't just written for them, it was also written for all Christians, and Paul even recognized that. He said to, he said to the Colossians in Colossians 4.16 to circulate this book. He said, send it to, I forget, the church in Laodicea, I think, and make sure you read their letter too, <clears throat> which is really fascinating. So you can see there's this process of circulating the New Testament books so that the whole church ultimately uh, receives them and reads them and and considers them as scripture. And you can also see in the New Testament that these books are considered scripture um, by other New Testament writers. And of course, in the second century, like I said, second century was probably when the canon was, was um, recognized by the church, finally. <clears throat> Irenaeus and Tertullian, second century theologians, which means, uh, you know, one, one, I think Irenaeus is like 110 to 150, those are his dates, something like that. They quote 23 out of 27 New Testament books. That's pretty significant. Only four books they don't quote. Um, yeah, I think that's really significant. It, they don't, I don't think they quote these other books that are talked about, these uh, Gnostic books, but they quote 23 out of 27 New Testament books. Um, and of course, like I said, 
the, the later books that were written, so Revelation, Hebrews, um, sometimes James, uh, sometimes the books of Peter, these, these, sometimes these were put into question. They were called like the, I forget, there was a term for them, the questionable books, whether they're actually canon or not. But that's only because they were later. It took longer for them to circulate. <clears throat> um, they, yeah, it just took longer for them to get all around the, the ancient church. But ultimately, they were accepted. And so that, 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 that's how we can see that it was an organic process. It was not political. It was not, you know, one event. Let's decide the books of the Bible. It was a process that happened as they were written. They were received. They were recognized as God's word. Uh, so the third thing that we can say is that the books of the Bible are self-authenticating. And in, in short, inspiration determines canon. Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. This is where we get our doctrine of inspiration, which means that God breathed out the words of scripture so that the words that we have in our Bible are God's very words. That's what inspiration essentially means. It means God oversaw the process. He gave the prophets who wrote the books he gave them the words to write. Um, he made sure that these words were his words. And so we can say that all of the Bible has two authors. It has a human author, that's true. But all of the Bible also has a divine author. God, God's hand can be seen in every single word of the Bible. And that's what we mean by inspiration. We also read in 2 Peter 1.21, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You can kind of see this process of God overseeing the work of writing scripture. He carried along these men as they wrote so that these words were his words. And so we believe that the Bible is God's word, which means that it has authority in itself. It has intrinsic authority because it's from God. And because it's from God, because it has authority, it is canon. I meant, to, I meant to define canon when we started. I forgot to. Let me do it just now. Canon means rule. It means standard. In ancient Greece, it was, it was literally a measuring rod. They would measure things with a canon. And that's what the Bible is for us. It's our standard, our rule for what to believe about God and how to live as followers of Christ. And so that's why the Bible is canon. The Bible is canon because it comes from God. It's our standard for what to believe about God because it's God's word to us. And because God inspired these words of the 66 Bible, of the 66 books of the Bible, they are canon. They're not canon for any other reason. They're canon because they are inspired. They're canon because they're God's word. The answer to our question that we started our lesson with, who chose the books of the Bible, is God. God chose the books of the Bible because he inspired these 66 books. If there were other inspired books, they would be in our Bible today. The, the books that are not in our Bible today are not in our Bible because they're not inspired. It's, it's a, it's a self-authenticating word that we have from God. So the early church did not canonize the books of the Bible, they recognized these books as canon. And they received them 
not because you know not because they read every single book that was available and made the decision but because these were inspired because these were inspired by God these books and the last thing that we can say is that the books of the Bible are coherent and Christ-centered. Uh, this is in contrast to the books of the Apocrypha, like the books of Maccabees, which the Roman Catholic Church has in their Bible, but it's also in contrast to these Gnostic books, uh, the pseudepigraphal books. These books do not have a coherent message that coheres with the Bible and they do not uh, center on Christ. Even the Gospel of Thomas, which claims to have the word of Christ, it does not cohere with the biblical message of who Christ is and what his mission is. Um, and some of these books actually contain real history. The Maccabees contains some real history about what happened in the period between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And some of them are actually really edifying to read. They're helpful sometimes. They have good wisdom, some of these books. Uh, some of them are interesting, even the heretical books, they're somewhat interesting to read, but none of them are coherent with the gospel message of the Bible. None of them are Christ-centered like the Bible is. All of the Old Testament books, they point to Christ. All of the New Testament books point us back to Christ. But that's not true with any of these other books. So like I said earlier, the heretical, the heretical books contain a message that completely contradicts the Bible, a salvation that just doesn't line up. The, the apocryphal books might not have a heretical message, but they don't really have a clear message. Maybe the only message they have is that God continued to work with Israel after the exile. But they don't contain the gospel. They don't teach about Christ, and that's the whole point of our canon, to teach us what the standard is um, about what we believe about Christ and how to, how to follow him. So that's biblical canon. That's why we have the books of the Bible that we do. That's some myths responding to those. We don't have that much time for questions. We're a little bit over, but if there's maybe one or two questions, I can try to answer them really fast. Otherwise, we can, we can take a break before service. One right here. It's important. Sorry. I have more of a comment. It's a, I think it's a important to point out that people get these myths and they start believing them. Why? Because they look at the Council of Nicaea and they look at what happened 70 years later, 72 years later, 396, and they lose track of the time frames. These are huge time frames. People didn't have Pony Express. There was, this was more of a process through that time. They didn't just meet here and then the meet again 70 years later and decide to come up with these new ideas during that meeting. These meetings, once they got together, like at Nicaea, <clears throat> they were together for weeks talking. It was more like a symposium. The, in the meantime, bishops in one church would have these ideas and they're going through the theology and talking ideas, but communication took months. Right. Just a little bit of communication and then to go and dwell on it and think of it and communicate it back months. So ideas were exchanged until there was calls to have these symposiums where all got together. And the reason we refer to the symposiums like <clears throat> the big event with big changes is because it was documented. Mm -hmm. That's the only reason. But this process didn't happen at those symposiums. Those were just conf confirmations 
or regurgitations of what had happened over decades leading up to the Council of Carthage, you know, a right. continuation of Nicaea. Eh, everything followed Nicaea after that was a continuation. They just had another meeting at Carthage yeah. decades later. Yeah. So I think if people relate to that and recognize that, they wouldn't be so prone to come up with the goofy ideas and the myths that you so well pointed out. Why do people buy into those? Because when you look at just the councils and forget everything that goes in between, when you don't look at it in the way it really occurred, they conclude these were the big events. The meteor struck and right. these new ideas came out. That's not the, the way it happened. Yeah. It was a slow evolution. Yeah. Helpful. All right. Thanks, guys. Let's, let's take a break.